Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers a range of customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from, along with numerous style options, so you can make your site look exactly how you want it to look. Squarespace is all about functionality and convenience. It's easy to use, but if for any reason you need some help, no problem. Squarespace has a terrific support team on hand, at the ready, 24-7. And remember, these people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. Are they dressed in plushy costumes? I will leave that to your imagination. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will match the overall style of your website, so your content will always look great on every device every time. So let's go, folks. Start a trial right now. No credit card required. And start building your website. Go to squarespace.com. And when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHER1. Again, that offer code is OTHER and then the numeral 1. Do that, you get 10% off. Go to squarespace.com right now and take advantage of this offer. It's an exceptional way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is yet another method of self-expression. This is happening right now just for you. How are you today? It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. Uh, My name is Brad Listy, and I am sitting here in Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. Uh, Earlier today, I was considering my own level of intelligence in the context of uh, a memory. I was remembering that Uh, Throughout most of my early 20s, I was opposed to sunglasses. (laughs) Uh, And actually, I had forgotten about this. 
because uh, I can do that. I can forget entire periods of my life. Uh, but suddenly this occurred to me, and I remembered that for some reason uh, in my uh, early 20s, I had this thing against sunglasses. And for years, literally, I refused to wear them uh, because I thought that they were an affectation. I thought that they were pretentious. <laughs> and I, I didn't like uh, to not see people's eyes. And I still don't, you know, to a degree when I'm having a conversation at close range. But, you know, this, uh, upon further reflection and with the benefit of uh, time, was clearly stupid and possibly insufferable. <laughs> uh, like You have to think about this for a second. I went for years uh, living in the mountains, in the Rocky Mountains of uh, Colorado, in an area of uh, like plentiful bright sunshine. And I never wore protective eyewear of any kind as a matter of strange principle. And even worse, I would sometimes rationalize this behavior by saying things uh, along the lines of, uh, well, the Indians never wore sunglasses. <laughs> Which they did not back in the day, as far as I know. And speaking of which, when were sunglasses invented? Like, when did this become a thing? Putting sunglasses on. I'm sure I could Wikipedia that, but uh, for now, I prefer to live in mystery. So, I don't know why I'm telling you this. This is what I was thinking about. <laughs> and, you know, if you ever find yourself operating under the illusion that I am a man of uh, reasonable intelligence which might seem like a reach to begin with, but you know, if, forever, if ever for any reason that were to cross your mind, I would like for you to imagine me standing on a mountainside in Colorado in a clearing uh, on a snowy mountain in the middle of winter in a vast white field of blinding sunlight squinting. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey! 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Elisa Gabbert. She has a new book out called The Self Unstable. It is available now from an independent press called Black Ocean. And uh, it contains elements of poetry, memoir, and aphorism. A very interesting book uh, delivered to you in a uh, hybrid form. I guess you could say. So it's very nice to have Elisa here. Uh, I am pleased that she agreed to be on this program, and I hope you enjoy our talk. So uh, here she is. This is Elisa Gabbert, and her new book, once again, is called The Self Unstable. So I am in Denver, Colorado, and I'm in my apartment, um, alternately looking out the window at the melting snow and the bookshelves right across the room from me. Okay, so are you, and you are uh, in, like, in Denver proper in the city, like Lodo or whatever? Where are you at? Right in Denver, Denver, Denver. Okay. I am somewhat familiar with Denver, as we were discussing before we came on the air. So I think Denver, yeah. I think, and, and by the way, are you stoned right now? Are you, have you purchased some marijuana in Denver since it's now legal? <laughs> I have not. I have not. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you could always get marijuana if you really wanted it. So this isn't something that's like going to change my lifestyle too much. I don't think. No. And you know um, what? I think like, I think the comparison with gay marriage, uh, is, is probably, <laughs> no, I no think, well, I did actually go out and get gay married right after. <laughs> no, I just mean that like, I think the comparison in terms of its actual on the ground street level impact on your everyday life mm-hmm. will be comparable. It's a non-event like people who want to smoke pot were smoking pot before pot became legal. Now they just can't go to jail for it. And uh, right. I think that maybe there'll be a bump in people, you know, especially at the outset who are going to be like going to the store to get it as a novelty or whatever. And maybe some people get into it, but I, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. And I think it's going to be great. I hope not. Cause I've heard all these rumors that people are going to flood to Colorado to, to live here now, which like my, my rents have already been going up every year. So I hope that's not the case. Well, you know, I've, I've always said that Denver, like at the very least, you can take heart in the fact that Denver has made some moves while they still can to um, do some land use planning and some, uh, forgive me if I'm misusing this term, civil engineering. Is that what, are you, is, that uh-huh. what you, is that what you do when you build like a, a train from Denver to the airport? Um, but just... Um, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that falls under the... The rubric of civil engineering, sure. Okay, well, the, bridges, the, my point, that kind of stuff. Yeah, my point is that uh, I live in Los Angeles, where they had no land use management, and like it's completely insane in terms of its planning. Which is, you know, because sure. it's such a beautiful city and it's such a beautiful piece of land that it's it's tragic that they didn't do a better job of planning this out with public transportation and whatnot. But I think Denver is on its way to becoming. Um, much bigger because it's such a nice place mm-hmm. to live. Uh, and at the very least, they're doing some good things to kind of like plan for that. Yeah, I hope so. Um, it's really easy to get around to because it's on like a real grid. Um, I just, I, I moved here from Boston, which is just absolute nonsense. So, so it's a nice change. Like okay. it's, it's hard to get lost here. Okay. So why, uh, why, why the move? Um, well, I, I hope this doesn't offend 
many of your listeners, but I hated Boston. So <laughs> I was trying to get out for a long time. Um, I actually lived there for 10 years. It's one of those places that I think is great to live for maybe two or three years or while you're a student. Um, great place to visit for, say, a long weekend, um, but not a good place to live for a long time. Why? Uh, well, it's, oh, I guess it to me it seems like it's lacking um, a lot of the benefits that you get from living in like a really big city like New York or LA, both of which I love. Um, but there's a lot of the annoying disadvantages of living in a big city. Like it's really expensive. And um, I mean, I guess LA doesn't have a disadvantage, but the weather really sucks. <laughs> and it's also just, I don't know, it's, there's, there's this kind of social conservatism there that I could never get used to. It's, people but aren't very friendly. It's so funny to hear you say that. Cause like, first of all, you're like, I want to say the third or fourth author that I've had on, in the last like month uh -huh. who's like spent time in Boston. I just talked to James Scott who went to Emerson for his MFA. So he, he's a friend of mine. And okay. I actually just listened to Laura Vandenberg's podcast the other day. And I, I heard you guys talking about Boston. Okay. Well, yeah. And then I talked to, I talked to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore who did some time in Boston and, and had like very negative things to say about it. And then there might've been somebody else. And, uh, I can't remember who it was, but like had some like really dark, and, and similarly, uh, a similar assessment, just like there's, it's very socially conservative, which for me, having spent like a, a grand total of like three days there in my life and having really mm -hmm. enjoyed it, I would think like Boston is like this Mecca of, uh, you know, left wing, uh, you know, acceptance and whatever, but I guess not. So, yeah, not so much. I mean, obviously they, you know, they vote, they vote lefties, but, um, I don't, I mean, it's, it's just this old city and there's a lot of like old money and right. Yeah. It's the best kind of money I get. Well, I mean, I, I say that jokingly. It's very reliable. <laughs> it's the softest <laughs> yeah. at that night. No. <laughs> so, okay. So how do you feel in Denver? Like, how long have you been there? Have you acclimated? Do you, is this like, you, you like where you are now? I really like it. Yeah. Um, I've been here about two and a half years. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's funny and that makes a difference. Um, you know, as, as cliche as that sounds and, um, there's a there's a nice kind of cohesive writing community here. A lot of poets. Yeah. Well, and you know the sunny thing. Like this is. I mean, that's not. That sounds totally fine to me, and completely. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like that's a that's a reasonable uh, criteria or criterion for de mm -hmm. deciding where to live. Because like I can't. You know, I've I've lived in Denver now and uh, Los Angeles for my entire adult life, and it's always sunny in both places and. I respond. I think I might have seasonal affective disorder. Like I, I need sunshine. <laughs> I, th I suspect that most people do. Yeah, well, but <laughs> I don't I mean, think it's like even a disorder because I mean it seems like people are either one way or the other deeply affected by the weather. I mean, some people like it when it's cold and when it's rainy, but I mean either way, like I don't know that many people that just don't care. Yeah. Well, there's. Some, I mean, I have some friends who can. You know, they, they're like uh, total night owls, so like sunlight doesn't bother them. Or they can just live in, you know, the, the drizzly or the gray areas and they don't care, you know, but mm -hmm. I'm not wired that way. So um, when you got to Denver, was this like a job-related move or did you just like pack up and land in Denver and then try to figure shit out once you got there? Well, it was um, it was sort of a, a decision by, I don't know, by ruling everything else out, I guess, Um 
my husband is from the Northeast and I was really the one who wanted to move. And so for years we would like debate about different cities we could move to. And then they would just eventually get ruled out for one reason or another. Um, and he actually threw Denver out, I think almost as kind of a dare. <laughs> and, uh, and then I sort of called it bluff by saying, yeah, let's move to Denver. And so, um, it was pretty random. We, we didn't, have a specific reason for moving out here. Um, we just kind of did it because we knew enough people to live here to, to have like a starter set of friends. And um, it's nice to yeah. have a, it's nice to have a starter set of but friends. I, yeah. yeah, I think that's pretty crucial actually. I I find that the older I get, the the harder I have to work to make new friends. And I mean, I think that I'm pretty good at making friends, but. I still think that I have to be really pushy to get a, over that sort of activation energy because everybody's got their own lives and right. Well, and I have this, I have this theory that it takes it takes a year. Like if you move someplace, you can't judge it um, for a full year. You have to live there for a full year, and it's likely that you won't be like integrated socially for maybe two at least. You know, unless you start with your starter set, you know, and then you have people who can introduce you, but. Unless you're like super, even super. even having a starter set, I think that's true. Because I mean, for the first year, it was like we knew all these people, but I think they would kind of forget that we lived here, and so they wouldn't necessarily automatically invite us to events and things like that. And I'm not on Facebook, so um, whenever I would complain about feeling lonely, my husband would berate me for not being on Facebook because that's how you get invited to things. But um, I don't know, maybe that's true. Yeah, I'm not on Facebook either, and I can sometimes feel like. Like my, like people talk about social events in the context of Facebook. And like, if you're not on, uh-huh. you're completely excluded. Like there's stuff going on in my family and it's like, oh, well, you're not on Facebook. So you didn't see, you know, it's like you miss an yeah, entire people day. like shun you over it. I don't know. I, it's, it seems almost comical to me. Like, you know, like a satire, the way that people continue to pressure me that, that I should be on Facebook. Like it's actually this kind of cult and no, hold your I'm ground missing out and it's inconveniencing them somehow that I'm not on there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm st- I, I was on and then I went off and I've been off for over a year now and I'm not going back. That's my, how my, long were you on it for? I don't know. Long enough to, to make an ass of myself repeatedly and just like, <laughs> and to be spending like, like at least 45 minutes a day on the site, like at least, you know, just like, and, and it's not in one continuous block of time. It's like going back and checking and liking shit. Right. And it's just, and, and it's just, uh, I, I found that the, uh, lifestyle advertisement element of the site where people are like, you know, putting up photographs of their like, uh, entree and their, their feet on a beach. And, you know, I just got, <laughs> couldn't deal with it anymore. And it, uh, it was just a negative use of time. It, I wasn't deriving benefit. Mm-hmm. That was the thing about it. And so yeah. I have enough ways to distract myself. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not at a, I'm not at a loss for ways to dick, yeah. to dick around. So I just, I took it out. I'm still on Twitter. I like Twitter. And uh, that's I feel the exact same way. I feel like people are much darker on Twitter, and that's somehow much less depressing to me than the kind of constant flow of positivity. Right. Well, and it's also you know the the character limit does help. Like it's like you know you might be annoying, but you're only annoying for 140 characters, and then you're out of my <laughs> and then you're then you're out of my feed. You know, and it's like there's something about the photos, and I guess you can share photos on Twitter, but it just seems like a different beast to me. And there's something. Uh, which I've mentioned on this show countless times before. There's something distinctly literary um, about it, and it's, it can be jokey. And um, you know, you work in aphorisms. There can be really people can say really wise or witty things. And there's something literary about the exercise to me that uh, I like. The compression. I don't know. Um, yeah, I agree. So um, you got your MFA in Boston at Emerson, correct? 
I did, yes. Okay, and so let's dial it back, actually. Where are you from originally? Are you from where? I'm, I'm from El Paso, Texas. Oh, you are? Okay. I was thinking the Northeast, but that, that's your husband. So uh, El Paso, Texas. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, like have me, you been there? No, I want to go, but I, I have this like kind of like uh, Cormac McCarthy, like borderland, uh, you know, uh, vision of it in my mind. Like, what was it like growing up there? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like that. Um, it, you know, less it's it's less cowboy, I would say. Actually, like, there's less of that cultural influence than there is just Mexico. It's right on the border of New Mexico. Um, when you're driving on I-10, like right, right near my house, it goes just along the border, and you can see the river, and then you can just see into Mexico, and it's literally like the shanty town. Um, so it's weird. Um, like I've never had a friend from my adult life visit me in El Paso and not think like, "Whoa, this is really weird." <laughs> what? But like, what um, is? What's so weird about it? Like, what? Just the fact that it's it's proximity to. Uh, yeah, I think that people don't expect it to be that literally a border town. Like, you can just stand and see across the border, and that's definitely a third-world country, just in in eyeshot. Right. Um, it's a weird feel. And there, up until just recently, because I finally knocked it down, um, right on the border, there was this old, like, I think it was a copper smoking plant called Sarko that was there for over 100 years. There's this big red and white tower instead of Sarko and right up the letters. Um, Wait, it was a what? It was a kid. what was it? It was a what plant? Copper smelting. <laughs> oh, smelting, smelting. I thought you said smoking. I was like, how do you smoke copper? Okay, smelting. Oh so. well, I'll smoke anything. I'm from Colorado. <laughs> right, but, um, right. <laughs> um, not really. My mom will probably listen to this. <laughs> yeah, right. Mom, mom, she won't smoke anything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually smoke copper. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it had become, I guess the, the factory was shut down at some point because this is an enormous source of pollution. And um, there were all these like activists in El Paso that would complain. Um, but then it was kind of just left there as a landmark. And they, they just recently in the past year or so um, demolished it, which I thought was kind of sad because it was just, I thought you were gonna. I, I thought you were gonna say. My whole life. I thought you were gonna say they converted it into lofts or something, or like a nightclub. <laughs> well, that that would be awesome, but it's like it's the width of it was not even. I mean, it was like a big chimney. <laughs> so, right. um, you don't yeah, need no, you don't need like a ton. Be... You don't need a ton of square feet. Uh, I guess horizontally to smelt copper, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, but so, I mean, I guess it's just like. It's just weird, the proximity, because, you know, there's all this pollution there. I mean, people burn trash and tires in the winter. And um, it's, you know, also, especially in the past five years or so, you know, one of the most violent cities in the world. It's like, well, I was going to ask you. like Insane I, numbers of murders. And, okay, because I want to ask you about this, because obviously there's like the popular conception of border towns that are like generated in fiction, um, both you mm-hmm. know, in print and on screen. And like how much, how much of that... Uh, do you really feel when you're there? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, obviously mm-hmm. th- these things get exaggerated, uh, for the purposes of storytelling and whatnot, but is, is that, element, <laughs> is that, is that element palpable when you're there? Do you feel like a sense of danger and like some sort of like criminal possibility? No, no, no. You feel no sense of danger at all. And I mean, technically there is no real danger because El Paso is actually one of the safer cities in the U S. Um, so like it doesn't actually cross over very much, uh, but across the border is very dangerous. Yes, exactly. But like, as long as you don't 
go across the border, you're absolutely fine. Okay. Um, so you didn't go like you didn't grow up like when you were a teenager. It wasn't like let's go across the border. Did you do that? So that was the culture when I was a teenager because it wasn't so dangerous then. Um, I was strictly forbidden by my parents to ever go. Um, all my friends went. This was kind of like my Facebook when I was in high school. Um, the, I didn't actually go across the border to like go drinking, you know, until I was maybe 18. And I went after I was already in college um, when I came back home to live with my parents. But before that, it was this whole experience that everybody in my high school knew about that I didn't know anything about. So like um, now, but it definitely was not, you know, the murder capital that, that, it, that it is now. What and, and what it's just the drug trade that, that has... Uh you know, cause this spike in, in violent crime? Yes. Okay. Yet another reason to decriminalize, right? Doesn't that take the power out of these crazy people, uh, out of their, out of their hands? If you, if we can. Just... Yeah. I mean, I would hope so. Um, I know there's also, you know, for whatever reason, like it's, it affects women hugely. Like there's just enormous, enormous numbers of women that are, you know, found raped and kidnapped and abandoned, murdered, um, and, you know, I don't even really know why that is the case, but there's, there's now this, this huge monument. It's pretty cool. It's like a giant red X. Um, and you can see it from, from sort of all over El Paso. There's a mountain in El Paso. Um, and it, there's like a scenic drive over it. If you go up and scenic drive, you can really see it. And, what, uh, what's that for? It's, it's a monument to all the, to all the murdered women. Oh, okay. Um, well, and the thing too, I've been reading. I mean, I, I'm no expert on this, but you read, you know, if you pay attention to the news, you catch a lot of uh, these stories. And like, you know, obviously there's a lot of crime related to the drug trade, and there's a lot of crime at the border, or whatever, whether it's drug related or you know human trafficking uh, or what have you. But especially with the drug trade, and especially um, or particularly with respect to Mexico, like there's something like really hyper violent about these. Uh, people or these gangs that are doing this in a, in a way that seems kind of uh, new. You know what I'm saying? Like, was it always this crazy where they're like beheading people and like stringing people up? And I feel like you see these stories and it's just like, my God, this is turning into like a horror film, you know? I know. It's weird. that I can't, I don't know how to sort of visualize it or experience it without automatically thinking of like a Tarantino film. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just, I don't know. I think that kind of sucks because, like my idea of violence has been sort of glamorized by the movie version of it. Well, I talked to, uh, I talked uh, this, uh, this is going way back. Um, but I talked to Katie Arnaldi, who's a writer, um, you know, in one of the earliest episodes of this show. And she was, you know, she wrote, she wrote a book. Oh God. I think it's called point doom, which is about the marijuana trade in Southern California and people growing and, you know, and she's, she was doing all this research for another book by going across the border here in California and learning mm -hmm. about like, you know, the, uh, the coyotes, God, are they called coyotes? The people who traffic people over and you know, the way, mm -hmm. that, the way that the whole game works. And, um, she, I guess there are blogs out there that really document like what is going on. And she gave me the links, which I, you know, I, I wish I could remember, but I remember going to them and they have like all these photos, which are like extremely graphic and disturbing and, you know, there's like a huge criminal underworld and it's like, uh, it, it's troubling. It's gotta be especially troubling if you're like in El Paso and you, you have some proximity to it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it really got so bad after I had already left, um, after I left Texas entirely, really, because I went to college in Houston. Um, so, you know, I haven't, haven't followed it as closely as I might have if I was still there. 
So what was your childhood like? Were you like a bookish kid or do you, are your parents literary folk? Um, I, I was super bookish. Um, my parents are, I wouldn't say they're literary folk. I mean, um, I'd say they're both very <laughs> and, intelligent. And literary folk. I don't know why like literary folk came out, but you know what I'm saying? Like, a, <laughs> I, I talked to I talked to writers where it's like mom was a librarian or dad was an author. You know, like you don't have any kind of like lineage like that. No, nothing like that. Um, my my mother actually has a PhD in history, but she didn't go back and get her PhD until after I uh, after I went to college. Okay. Um, my father's an internist, and when I was growing up, she was always his office manager, so they worked together. And um, what is an internist? That's a, that's a physician. That's a doctor. He is, yes, he's a physician. But what is an inter- what is an internist like? What does that mean? An internist is basically like you know one step fancier than a GP, like a general practitioner. Okay. He's pretty much the person you would go to um, either if there's something wrong and you want a referral to like a specialist. Okay. Um, they're usually pretty good at diagnostics, or he might kind of help you just track like some kind of long term, pretty stable condition like diabetes or hypertension or something like that. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. So smart parents and, um, sure, yeah, I have smart parents <laughs> all right. and you were, and you were um, reading and writing from a young age. And did you know that you were writerly? I mean, was this something that you kind of like set your mind on as a youth or is it something you came to in college or? Yeah, I was, um, I was one of those kids that was like very, very quickly kind of singled out as quote unquote gifted. Like I learned to read when I was three or something. And, um, and I was always kind of on that, like, advanced track and, like, given extra homework. And um, I liked to read a lot when I was a kid. Um, and I was always told my whole life that I should be a writer. And when I was a kid, I thought that sounded very boring because, I don't know, I think because maybe because writing came very easily to me. Um, and so I wanted to do something loftier. Um, but I think it was also that I just didn't see how writer could be like a job or a life. Um, I still don't know how I'm still. <laughs> yeah. And, and it turns out that it's, it can't really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it wasn't until like much, much later, I guess that I, I decided, yeah, I could kind of make a life out of this. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So um, you, do you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother. Okay. And is he a, a, an artistic uh, folk? <laughs> Um, he is, uh, more of like a pro programmer folk. Um, oh yeah. Okay. He's, yeah, he's into computer science and, um, that's a good thing to really be in the game. He's very smart too. Uh, both he and my mom read a lot, but they read completely different stuff uh-huh. for me. They read like a lot of, uh, like a lot of fantasy and sci-fi, um, like, yeah, uh, I mean, what, I lichens and read uh, all kinds of stuff. But. Okay. I'm sorry. I said lichens. Those are the things that turn into wolves, right? I'm totally out of the. I'm. I'm. That's out of my realm. I'm very bad at fantasy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't know that one. But I do tend to fetishize like those weird little, like genre jargony terms. Um, like I love like chess terms and programming is full of them. Gaming, especially. He used to work at a at a video game company and. Um, They've got, they've got great terminology, great lingo. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a whole world. It is a whole world. So you guys got along. Were you close in age? We are about two and a half years apart. Okay. Um, maybe a little less. 
three school years part. Um, we fought a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot up until I was oh, maybe 13 or 14. And then we were really close for a while. And we went to the same college. Where did you had go? a lot of the same friends. Where did you go to college? I went to Rice University in Houston, Texas. What's it called? Rice, rice university. Oh, rice, rice. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, okay, that makes. I thought, I thought. I mean, it sounded like rape, but I was like, that's not a university. So, um, <laughs> rice, rice university, and you were English major. I was not an English major. I majored in linguistics and cognitive science because I remember I still didn't want to be a writer at this right. point. Right. Okay. So, what did you want to be? Um, I, well. I wasn't really sure, but I assumed that these things would like clearly lead me to some brilliant career. Um, <laughs> I the first linguistics class that I took in college, I heard about like a branding company that I still remember the name of, based in San Francisco. I don't even know if it still exists, but um, it was called Lexicon, or it is called Lexicon if it's still around. And you know what they do is that they they brand products. Like I, and the one I remember is that they branded the Swiffer. <laughs> and so um, a lot of linguists would be employed there because they sort of know, like, all the different connotations of, like, clusters of letters and, you know, if something might have shitty connotations in some other language or, you know, that's the whole idea, that they're using their skills with language to Okay, so wait a minute. Let's, let's, break, let's break down. Branding. Yeah, let's, mm -hmm. break, let's break down Swiffer. Like, what? Because I'm thinking <laughs> it's a sweeper. But it's what's the if like what's the if uh, you know sound where where what are well we... I if I had to guess I would say I would bet that they're looking for connotations with both like sweeping and quickness like chippy right um, and swift yes so like you're sweeping but it's also really fast yes indeed and then there's the Swiffer dance that viral video campaign um, I don't know if that has anything to do with the uh, the etymology of the word but I hear you I think that's I think that's accurate that makes perfect sense to me. So I got it in my head that I wanted to do something like that. Um, but I was also studying cognitive science, which has a lot of like computer science and philosophy and um, also stuff like neuroscience all involved in there. And, you know, I just figured like that's, that's science-y. Surely I can find a, a well-paying job in this field. Um, and then what happened is that I got to like sort of the end of college and I had been writing more and more poetry and um, around that time, I guess it was like 2002, the economy was not awesome. <laughs> and when my brother had graduated, they were just like throwing jobs at people in his class. Like, yeah, no, be a consultant, whatever that meant, you know, and like, well, here's your starting bonus. I, know, I graduated college in 1997, which was like right when the dot-com boom was like peaking. I participated in none of this, by the way. Like... <laughs> I, I, any kind of like huge, like, you know, uh, jackpot, like windfall, uh, ec economic situation has eluded me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but I had, I had friends who moved out to San Francisco, uh, and literally took these jobs and became millionaires in two years, like right out of college. And it was just like, oh, God. everyone was just, and, and if not millionaires, then like had like, you know, six figure jobs and company cars and like going to like parties yeah. where like, there was just like. You know, ice sculptures with vodka trickling down, and you know, <laughs> just like you know what I'm talking about, like that kind of stuff. Yes, and yes, that, I knew people who were doing stuff like that too. Yeah, and so it, you know, um, to enter, I think that's that can be kind of like a uh, blinding way to enter 
the workforce, you know, straight out of college, especially in light of, you know, how things have unfolded in the years since. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's how I came out of it. And I'm like, damn, I wish I would have just gone to San Francisco. Because <laughs> <And, laughs> you could you could have done anything. It was just like you're an account executive. You know what I'm saying? It was like any job and then you got a little equity and then that equity wound up like spiraling into something crazy. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a bizarre, but it was actually really a short amount of time. I mean, I, I guess like if you were there for the build in like 94, 95, you know, you were, it wasn't really off the, off the rails, but then once you got into like 97, 98, 99, I think that's when it, you know, it was like that, that period. So anyhow, mm-hmm. hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, yeah, I, I was not getting any, any job offers at all when I graduated from college. So I ended up going to graduate school and I was kind of, on on the fence between whether I wanted to continue studying linguistics um, or whether I wanted to just, you know, throw it all away and get an MFA in poetry. Um, and so I applied to both kinds of programs and I ended up deciding to study poetry. Okay. So uh, Rice University, what, what is, I don't know anything about Rice University before we get you to graduate school. Like, I mean, if you're studying linguistics sure. in cognitive science, um, that's pretty, uh-huh. that's pretty brainy. And like, it sounds like you were a pretty serious student. Like, w- were you really engaged academically? I would say, yeah. I mean, race is like, um, so I, yeah, I don't think it has like, you know, a huge national reputation, but in the South, it kind of has this reputation as like the Ivy League of the South where, you know, a lot of really smart kids, especially in Texas, um, end up going there because A is closer and B is cheaper than um, a lot of other kind of top tier private universities. Did you get so, in, did you get into any like other schools or was it, were you just focused there? So I only applied to two schools, if I remember correctly, right? And UT Austin, because my parents didn't want me to leave Texas when I went to college. Um, and every, we were just really hoping I would get into Rice because that's where my brother went and he loved it. And, you know, we, we'd all been to visit there and I loved it. And that's just really where I wanted to go. So luckily I got in. Um, and when, when I was a kid, I totally wanted to go like Stanford or something like that, but that just didn't happen. So, um, but see that that yeah, but I mean, see that differentiates you. Like you actually had that thought. Like that never even occurred to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> again, hindsight's twenty twenty. Like I was just like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. I wasn't even thinking. But um, it sounds like you had some ambition. I mean, you were you wanted to do uh, something. Well, I, I mean, this is sort of, the story of my life is sort of like with with each year less ambition. <laughs> I think I told you, I was like, I was always the smartest kid in my class and I was really little. And then like, you know, the older I got sort of the less likely I was to be the smartest um, or, you know, smartest meaning like best performing academically, obviously, because it's not like I was taking IQ tests every day. <laughs> I just like right. had the best grades. Um, and at Rice, like almost, I think almost everyone who goes to Rice was used to being like one of the smartest kids in their class. Um, so you're just automatically thrown in with a bunch of other kids who who were like used to this treatment. Um, but I, I really loved it because I don't know, I've, I've heard these sort of stereotypes of like Harvard, for example, where it's just so high pressure and, you know, everybody just studies all the time. And I think race has this tendency to try to cherry pick people who, um, are a little bit more creative. So smart but creative too so they were like the coolest people I've ever been around in my life just like 
I've never had that diverse of a friend group since then. I mean, now I'm mostly hanging out with writers all the time, which is great. I love writers, but it was so nice to, you know, be talking to architects and engineers and musicians and all in the same room. Okay. But did you have like a crazy period? Did you go nuts in college at all? And like do a bunch of drugs or, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, not really. I mean, I think El Paso is like kind of a party town. So it's not like I was like, had never been to a party with alcohol before or anything. So no. You're like, um, yeah, I grew up across the board for just across the border from Mexico. I've seen, I've seen shit. Like, <laughs> exactly. You weren't cloistered. Exactly. But you, but, you know, but you, but you had your head on straight. You were, you had your head on straight. You uh, got your degree there. You did not uh, experience any kind of like, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, you, you, you were never in danger of flunking out. You never got in trouble or anything. No, 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 no. The, I, I think I got one B in in college, which was very mortifying to me. What did you actually. get? A, what did you get a B in? I got a B in computer science, and this is why I am not a coder. <laughs> um. Yeah, and I think the only reason I got a B is because my brother, like, quote-unquote, helped me with my project. (laughs) (laughs) But it was like, we'd be, like, staying up late in the computer lab, and, like, he'd be so frustrated that I wasn't getting it, and he'd just be like, let me do it. (laughs) Yeah, well, coding, I mean, I've Um, worked, because I've done this website for all these years, you know, and I, I don't code it, but I've worked with, like, a bunch of different people, and... You start uh-huh. to you start to realize it's an art unto itself, or it's a method of thinking that some people are better at than others, to say the least. And when you find somebody yeah. who's really gifted at it, uh, it's sort of amazing, like the way they can like scan code and work out bugs. And you know, I don't understand any of it, but it is. I mean, although in a way, I kind of think it must be like writing a novel, where you have to keep all these sort of open threads in your mind at the same time, like yeah. Like way way more than you can you know see on the screen at one time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my buddy John, who uh, he's really good at it, like unusually good. And uh, I don't know what's going on in his brain, but it's whatever's going on in his brain is not going on in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at least I know enough to know that. So uh, right. okay, so you you start to like I, I like this this concept where like as the years go by, you get less and less ambitious as you're like drifting into poetry. Um, this. <laughs> This begins to enter a realm I can relate to. Uh, but <laughs> so you you start to write poetry. Like, what set you off? Like, was it just your love of language, and you started to get fixated on language and things you could do in poetry that allowed you to, like, you, you know, an opportunity to play more with what you were working at linguistically on the other side of the line? Or well, I mean, I guess I should say that um, poetry wasn't really new. I'd been writing poetry most of my life, but, you know, especially in high school. Um, Do you have any of that poetry on hand? Could you read some for us, like the high school poems? I wish I did. I I don't have any of them with me. I do still have, like, a stack of high school poems buried somewhere um, in my high school bedroom. Uh, I should do an episode where... I wish I could where quote people, a line to you. Yeah, I wish, like, I wish I... I think I should do an episode where I just, you know, I prearrange it, but I just have authors read... Uh, poems from high school, like, you know, one poem. That would be an interesting episode. I would love that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I think I just, you know, essentially just took it more and more seriously as, as I got older. Um, And I had a a poetry teacher at Rice, her name was Susan Wood, who was very encouraging of my poetry. And so who are you, who are you reading? Who are you reading that you like set you off? Oh, let's see. Um, Well, I know that it was in, her class that I first read, Ann Carson, um, and that kind of like 
blew my mind a little bit in terms of like genre distinctions, I think. Um, the book that we read was Men in the Off Hours and it has like essays in it, but <laughs> but also poems and well, but that makes um, that makes sense with you with the self unstable, which like seems kind of yeah. like a, a hybrid form. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, although, I mean, at the time, I wasn't I wasn't writing anything like that. I was just writing like plain flavor poem poems. But, um, <laughs> but I was I was still like, wow, this is crazy. Like, what am I reading? Why is there an essay in the middle of this book of poems? Is this even an essay? What's happening? Um, <laughs> but it took like I think probably. I don't, like a decade before reading stuff like that actually trickle down into the way I write at all, if that makes sense. I mean, I always think of sort of a lie when people ask you, who are your influences? Because it's more like, who do you want your influences to be? Right. Well, but, um, well, the thing too, is that like, I, I was reading up on you um, before we got on the phone and, you know, you're talking about the way that the, like, like your online reading uh, filters into what you write, um, you know, often. And, and I feel like, uh, that has got to be the most common influence in the way people are writing or most people are writing mm-hmm. today. Though I don't think that people, when they're asked about their influences are often as direct about that as they could be, or maybe should be because, um, it might seem cheaper or less, uh, uh, you know, highbrow or something. Do you know what I'm saying? It sounds, it sounds, yeah. it sounds better to say Ann Carson than like the daily beast or, you know, like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. huge I mean, but I mean, hey, listen, that's like I if I'm being honest and I'm laying my cards on the table, um, what I read online has a big influence. And sometimes this stuff can be genuinely good. It doesn't matter what delivery device the words are coming through, you know, ultimately. Of course, of course. But it yeah, can, it and can, I mean, it can just be a line in something on the Huffington Post that can like spark my, you know, my brain. And what what I find and maybe you can speak to this is that, you know, if you find some fragment, and oftentimes it is a fragment or an idea, um, sometimes it's a full piece, uh, I don't do a good enough job of archiving what interests me, like writing that stuff down. And I keep telling myself I should, because I feel like Mm. the raw materials I would collect, if I could somehow, you know, be disciplined about that and organize them and maybe even index them, um, could find their way into a book of some kind that would be of interest, uh, at least to me. <laughs> I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that's actually one of the things I love about Twitter is that it's like this auto way of archiving fragments, because if you see something on Twitter that you love, you just favorite it. And like, I think some people say, oh, what is the point of favoriting something? What does that do? But I actually go back and look at my favorites. And yeah. so, um, I mean, I'm I'm collecting all these things that interest me and these little bits of language, and yeah, and, and it's not links. easy to do that with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, That's the thing about it is that, like, I, I talked about it earlier from the perspective of like you know joke writing and aphorisms and. Uh, that sort of thing. But what it's also great for is in, uh, information aggregation. Like, you know, you can mm-hmm. you can organize. It makes it very easy to organize, uh, you know, info. And that's that's one of the main ways that I use it. Right. I mean, I frequently talk to, to look through my favorites for, oh, I can't remember the way somebody put that thing. It was so smart. Or, you know, where's that link? I know I favorited it at some point. So I, I definitely do go back and look at that stuff. Okay. So here's a question because uh, this is something that I think about a lot. You know, if you find a line, let's say you're following somebody on Twitter who you don't even know personally, but who um, you mm-hmm. know, gives good Twitter or whatever. And you're like, okay, this person's funny. I'm following them or they're interesting and they they consistently post good links or whatever. Um, if there's mm-hmm. like a, a bit of a phrase, like or a turn of a phrase that you lift from them and put into your own writing, like where does um, 
where, where does the line fall in terms of appropriation and like, do you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Attribution. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So, um, I don't, I don't consciously appropriate stuff very frequently. Um, frequently, um, in in the self unstable, there's, I think, I could be wrong, but I think there's only one direct quote that's unattributed, and it's in quotation marks. But it's, it's I don't say who says it. Um, there are other parts where I say, you know, Boethius said, and then there's the quote. Um, but that quote is just a whole tweet and it's I vote every day by not having children and it was a Blake Butler tweet from years ago that I think about a lot um and I kind of toyed with having like a note section in the book where I kind of would have acknowledged that um and I ended up not doing a note section because it felt like I would have ended up being longer than the book (laughs) well because Um, I, I feel like as a writer um especially in writing that I might lean towards on the nonfiction side that Mm-hmm. You know, I have nothing original to say uh, in a lot of, <laughs> in most respects. Like I like to go do the research and read things and then piece them together and make arguments uh, like stitching together things other people have said. Uh, does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, what am I going to add to this? I, I kind of feel like most things have been said. It's just a matter of organizing it in a way that is new and compelling. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like, I could phrase it my own way, but like, do you really need to go to all that trouble if somebody's already done, um, a nice, <laughs> a nice job of saying it cleanly? Cause it, right. it just, it feels like, uh, and I don't mean to say that it's fine to just like, you know, steal somebody's work. But what I'm saying is that like, you know, if somebody has, uh, found like a, a metaphor that's really apt and like, that like just cuts through the, the fog and like, you know, makes it make sense. Um, yeah. you know, then it's like, okay, do I use like a, a different and even maybe slightly lesser metaphor to convey the same thing and make it my own, even though I could just use the same one, you know what I'm saying? It just gets tedious after a while. And it's like, does this really matter? Like, I don't know. I, so, um, I, I work in, in search engine marketing and, um, there's this term for when you like create a web page, basically just by cutting and pasting lines of text from other web pages, that's called stitching. Okay. I think that you actually just use the word stitching, but yeah. I don't know using it in that sense. Um, and like, this is frowned upon by Google because, you know, it's not, it's not really original content, even though you end up with a human at the end of an original text. Um, but you know, what's, what's interesting about the fact that they, you know, supposedly frown on this is that Wikipedia ranks on the first page for some, some huge number, like 70 to 80% of, (laughs) of Google searches. And, uh, I mean, most Wikipedia pages are basically stitching. It's like you said, just taking things that other people have said. And I mean, sometimes somebody goes in there and, and I think there was more of this in the past, like types in original language just because they happen to know whatever about the subject. But a lot of it is just cutting and pasting from, from other sources. And you can kind of, you can batch or spot check it by like, if you just look something up right in that you happen to know about and you notice the language is sort of a little too specific or just like it doesn't sound as flat as you expect Wikipedia to be and then you just copy and paste and do a Google search and you'll find that it's listed directly from some other source. Okay, well, this, um, but that actually relieves me because I, whenever I go to Wikipedia uh, I'm, or often <laughs> when I go to Wikipedia, I'm like, who the fuck has the time to sit here and like do this? <laughs> well, it's so weird. Like why would somebody take the time to like copy and paste from some random, you know, website about France and then put it on Wikipedia? Like, yeah. it's so, it, to me, it's just this weird, massive conceptual art. Like, what is it? It's like, it's, 
it's like almost doesn't refer to anything. It just refers to other parts of the internet. And yeah. it's so weird. And like, it's not even, it's not, it's not even trying to be objective anymore because there's too much of it and you can't police it. So it's just this like bizarro world or, you know, this like Borgesian thing that has nothing to do with reality at all. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay. So from the literary perspective, um, mm-hmm. responding to the internet, do you consider mm-hmm. do you consider this uh, a primary component of your work? Like, do you? I'm hoping you're going to say yes because I find that like <laughs> I find that I, I I find that I have not talked to a ton of writers who have said that, but I feel like most of us are doing that at least in some capacity. I know I certainly am, but like, I, and I feel like it's necessary. How could we not? It would be like ignoring the yeah. elephant in the room to not have your work be reflective of the way that most of us are reading a majority of the words we ingest. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think I do, you know, consciously and with purpose engage with and respond to the internet and my writing, like, and more and more really, because when, um, when I read reviews of my first book, I wasn't so consciously doing that. Like in my mind, it was all sort of about like death and love and, Death of love and stuff. Wait, was <laughs> this the, was this the poetic French, subject? Was this the French exit? Mm-hmm. Yes, the, the French exit. Okay, but uh, yeah, a lot of people in reviews or essays or whatever commented on, um, like the kind of running theme of technology, and that was something that I hadn't thought about that much when I put it together. Um, but you know, now sort of, I guess when I was putting my second book together, and you know what I'm writing now, like I just. I, mean, I think I think about those things more a lot a lot more consciously, and I you know I think the self unstable deals with them more directly, or at least I was direct about <laughs> knowing that I was dealing with it directly. Um, it wasn't it wasn't like this buried undercurrent. Well, but I feel like you're well positioned, you know, with your educational background and your DNA, you know, like the linguistic thing mm-hmm. and the cognitive science and the brother who's a coder, and you've got you know there's some sort of combination there that I think. Um, places you well, you know, to, to speak to that stuff. Well, good. I hope so. Um, I mean, like you, I think that, you know, especially like by proportion, the, the vast majority of the words I consume on a daily basis are via the internet. Like, I mean, I read one book of poetry a month probably, and, but I'm on the internet like all day, every day. So, and I think that there is a lot of super interesting kind of language innovation happening just with the way that people write specifically for the internet. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like this big laboratory and because it's so big and so messy and, um, you know, it's just, it, it allows for experimentation, you know? And I think that that's, mm-hmm. the, I think that's the case for writing. I also think it's the case for filmmaking and television and music. And I mean, you know, like that's one of its positives, um, you know, among, uh, you know, several, I think, well-documented negatives, but, uh, you know, I, fi- I find that language experiments that happen online and, uh, you know, just to go back and, and hit Twitter again, um, there are a lot of things that happen there that I find uh, super fascinating. And I can find reading someone's Twitter feed sometimes as enjoyable and uh, even edifying as reading a book. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I like the way that people use it um, when I think they're just sort of feeling out ideas as opposed to there's usually this impression when you read an essay that like it's the final word, you know, that they've really thought about it. (laughs) This is the order they decided to place the statements in, and this is the best structure possible. And, um, you know, whether or not that's true, but that's, that's the impression it's trying to create. And, 
you know, on Twitter, it's more like you're actually having a conversation with someone where, you know, they're speaking a little bit off the cuff and the ideas are still formulating themselves. Yeah, you're just like, or you're just talking to yourself, which seems like the case for me. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> lately that I've been doing that, but I, I find that sort of like, I like to read tweets like that where somebody's just like processing, you know, just, I think kind of like mm -hmm. what you're saying where they're thinking out loud, you know, and it's, uh, it's not super clean or polished, but um, it gets me like if I read somebody who's doing that, it gets me thinking and I find that sort of stimulating and interesting, you know, and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. So uh, at the level of aphorism, because the aphorism factors into uh, your new book, mm -hmm. uh, how do you write aphorism? And, and first of all, just because I know there are people like me who will have to like Google this um, to make sure they <laughs> know exactly what an aphorism is. Say what an aphorism is just so we can clarify for people and then we can talk about it. Oh well, now I feel like I should have looked it up before we talk. <laughs> it's like it's like a it's like a uh, it's like a a, a a statement of uh, deeper wisdom, cleverly put. <laughs> See, I'm fucking it up already. But yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I would. It's. I mean, a synonym would be like a truism, except that truism makes it sound like it's a cliche already. Whereas I think, um, I mean, maybe aphorism too. But I think the idea is that it's like the sort of declarative statement um, and. In my mind, it kind of like grasps towards truth, um, but in the end, it sort of doesn't really matter if it's true or not because it's just something to think about. And if you decide the opposite is true, that's just as interesting. It's just really compelling. It's like it's like a, it's like a good tweet, you know. It's like the kind of thing that makes you um, think or decide or react, you know, in some way. And uh... yes, exactly. And I really I wanted this book to feel like um, yes, statements that you know, you're not necessarily supposed to take this true or, you know, definitely not supposed to take this thing. Like, this is a list of statements that Alisa Gabbard believes, <laughs> you know, like, that's, that's not what it's about at all. It's more like um, things to think about. So, yeah, I mean, exactly like a tweet. Um, so how did, Twitter so how, is a perfect, the perfect venue for aphorism. Okay, so was that, was that like your laboratory? Were you, were you deleting tweets that you felt like might work well in the book once they had gone up and, like, passed some sort of smell test or... Uh, how, do you, <laughs> like, how do you arrive at these? Because, you know, the other thing that makes me think of, and this might be cheapening it, but it makes me think of like, you know, being a college freshman, like doing bong hits and then having like this awesome thought. Like <laughs> when, do you know what I'm saying? Cause like when you read, when I read your stuff, it's like, oh yeah, that's like, that's what it reminds me of in a way. And I mean that as a, as a high, <laughs> I mean, that's that a great, I mean great that, compliment. I was gonna say, I mean that as a high compliment, like pun intended, because, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's very uh, stimulating, and I'm curious to know if there's like a, any kind of special process, or do you just do um, a lot of writing and then you whittle down and, and stick with the best stuff? I do a lot of writing and then whittle down. Um, I would also say I don't. I can't say that like I start on Twitter and if I think something's successful, then that tweet becomes a line. It's more like working in parallel um, because I'm just I'm like thinking all the time, obviously because I'm. A living human being, um, and sometimes those thoughts come out to me feeling like they could be tweets or they could be lines of poetry. Mm. Um, and sometimes there's sometimes both. Sometimes I tweet something and I think, oh, you know, I think I could put that in a poem. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess like at the top of the funnel, it's just all the thoughts, and then you know they kind of come down and sometimes get funneled into into other forms. Um, what about input? Like what? Because I think like. 
I'm I'm at my most interesting as a writer when I'm doing a lot of reading, which is like super elementary, but is easy to forget when you're like, why am I feeling dry? It's like, well, there's not enough input, you know, and yeah, um, yeah. So, so what are you like? What are you reading? Like, what's your reading diet uh, in terms of quantity, but also in terms of like actual, uh, you know, subject matter? Like, do you find mm-hmm. yourself do you find yourself returning to certain kinds of books that sort of uh, get you going? Uh, you know, from a writing standpoint, are there themes that you feel like you're really fixated on that you can point to? Hmm. Um. So I mean. Oh, wow. So I guess I have, I, I totally agree that you need a bunch of input to have interesting output. Um, although I would also maybe say as a corollary that some of that input for me is not just reading, but like making sure I'm having occasional experiences in the world. What are those? <laughs> <Where> I'm like, <laughs> they're the things that books are about. <laughs> right. Shit. Um, okay. No, it's just like trying to like go outside and be away from a computer or a phone. Um, and you know, like have have time to be like alone with my thoughts, so my brain can work without like necessarily having input <laughs> in the form of other words getting in and interrupting and um, screwing up the tape. But uh, as far as my reading goes, I would say with poetry, I tend to like binge and then not read any poetry at all for a little while. And I'm in a little bit of a like I'm on a poetry diet right now. I'm not really. I'm not really reading any. I haven't for the past month or so, I would say. Um, but what I tend to do is I get really in the mood for poetry, and then I'll, like, devour the several books at once, and I'm, like, just so into it. I'm like, God, poetry is the best. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, like, tweeting lines, and I want to talk about it. Um, and I love when I have those experiences, and then they tend to go away. And then if I'm not in the mood to read poetry, it's just like not happening. And I, then I don't really even bother. Um, and then I also read a lot of novels. Um, and I kind of like reading stuff like pop science. Like I was reading this book about parallel universes a while back. That was just super crazy. It was like blowing my mind on every page. What's and, going um, on? What's, I, going, on? I love what's going on? Like with, what's going on with parallel universes? Are those things real? There's like, <laughs> Well, so the, this book is—it's all about how, like, you know, we don't really know what what scientific framework we're working with because you know there's not there's not like clear consensus on how the universe is built exactly. Um, but almost any framework you start from, like, eventually you you reach this logical conclusion that there's probably some form of parallel universes. So, yeah, there's probably parallel universes. <laughs> See, you know what? You say there's no clear consensus on how the universe is structured. It, this is another, uh, I think, outgrowth of reading online a lot and especially like scanning news, you know, news sources on a regular or daily basis is that you begin to realize that there's really not a clear consensus on just about anything. Like. I, yes. I, I, I think in particular, and I'm against consensus. Consensus is a lie. Yeah, I mean, it's like I think especially about like scientific fact. It's like they're always finding like a fossil that like proves that like you know man actually existed two million years before we thought he did. And there's always like a nutrition you know nutrition related article where it's like actually you know we found out that you know kale is bad for you. And it's like what you know, it's like there's constantly <laughs> it's constantly the yes. gr- the ground is shifting on your feet. And it's like people don't. I know think anything. people want to believe that there's consensus on most things or like that we've already figured everything out because it's just so much easier to to not feel like well I've got to you know read all the evidence and figure it out myself like <laughs> and we and we can't you know we can't like figure out everything on our own we don't have, nobody nobody got time for that so um 
yeah, like, I think we just, we would like to believe that there's scientific consensus on all the sort of important issues. But unfortunately, like, the more you look into something, the more complex it seems. Yeah, certainty is, anytime I feel like there's certainty in a person or in a piece of writing, um, I start to recoil somehow. I don't (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I like, I, then again, I like when people are clear headed and ha- like, you know, directed in their thinking and whatnot, but do you know what I'm saying? Especially when you get into like parallel universes and matters uh, of a philosophical or cosmic nature, I, I think that I, I prefer a little bit more humility. Yeah. I mean, I think you can be clear and direct while also leaving room for uncertainty. I mean, that's, yeah, I would say that's like exactly the tone I was going for um, in the self table because I mean, it's just like, it's just a bunch of declarative statements, essentially. Well, there's not, there there's not much obfuscation. Well, it's right there in the title, The Self-Unstable. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I'm completely lucid about my uh, idiocy. Like, you know, in my... You know, <laughs> I'm very clear about this. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you were writing it, uh, I, I guess I, just, I think of process, you know, like you're... Like, are you starting with, because, you know, for people who haven't read the book, like they, you know, a lot of the text works in these blocks, you know, paragraphs. It's not like you say, like uh, poetry um, that people might be expecting, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of its uh, its actual structure and its layout on the page. But were you starting with a, a concept? Were you starting with one line and then building around it? You know, like how did, how did the actual process mm-hmm. of writing work? Because it's the kind of book uh, and the kind of work that makes you ask that question. Like, how was it written? Mm-hmm. I think um, a lot of it was sort of like collecting lines or sentences and then, you know, adding onto them or collecting them in clusters until they, you know, felt like a complete block to me. And they are, you know, they're sort of formulaic. And for me, often the way it started was with um, a single aphorism. Um, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to just think of one off the top of my head as an example. Um, oh, like the mo- our most frequently accessed memories are most likely to be wrong. Um, something like that, like that, you know, feels true ish, <laughs> you know, maybe it's true. Sure. And then sort of, sort of writing around it, exploring that idea, but not just that idea, like related ideas, um, well, other was, things that say. make me think of, I tried not to make them just like, this is the poem about memory or whatever. I mean, the memory is all throughout the collection and, um, yeah, it, they're more like, they're more like the way, you know, I don't want to say the way we think because I hate that idea that like literature has to be imitative. But, um, you know, when I, when I sit down and think like, I'm like, Oh, I want to write a poem. I'm not just zeroed in on one particular idea. Like it tends to wander and get off track. Well, no, that's what I like about it. But I think like, you know, the juxtaposition, I think juxtaposition is one of uh, its charms. And I think like those choices are interesting, you know, because they're, they're, they're not related and yet they are. And that's like part of the fun of the little blocks, mm-hmm. of te- blocks of text is like, you know, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm sure that that was all like part of your uh, construction process, but you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it can almost trick you into thinking it's accidental. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's not. Well, and that's the thing about, I mean, really all writing, but I guess especially poetry, like, or maybe poetry just highlights it. Like, Everything you do, by definition, is a choice, but some of it is accidental. Some of it is arbitrary, but then, you know, you decide you like the effect, and so you keep it. And so, 
So then I guess it's on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it looks good after the fact and, um, it's unique, you know, or at least it feels unique to me and it feels, um, you know, internet-y, you know, not in like a direct line way, but in a way that like, I, I hear echoes of the internet in it, which I appreciate. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it's exciting. And you just got like a nice little, uh, write up in the New Yorker by, T is it Teju Cole? Am I pronouncing his name right? Um, yes. that must've been exciting. I saw And I saw your tweet. You're like, any, I will never shit talk the New Yorker ever, ever again. <laughs> Yeah, actually, just like a few days before um, before that came out, I was I was talking to some writers and and kind of shit talking the New Yorker. So um, we'll see next. Yeah, so next that was time. a really nice surprise, and then I immediately felt guilty. Well, no, but next time, <laughs> next time you want to write up in a in a particular magazine, just start shit talking it. That seems to be the. Oh <laughs> yeah, I really hate the Believer <laughs> and Harper's. Yeah. God, God, I just I Harper's hate, sucks. I hate the New York. <laughs> I hate the New York Times front page. Like I wish that you yes. Know, yeah. I, I hope they never write about this podcast. They're ever. such hacks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and did you, here's a question. Did you reach out to Teju Cole directly and say thank you? Um, yes, I did. Yeah, we, we follow each other on Twitter. Um, oh, you do? Okay. Sadly, he, he hasn't really been been tweeting much lately, which is too bad because he's he's really great at it. Um, yeah, he's probably, he, he's he probably kind of working. He quit or did like a soft quit or taking a break i don't know but it's that's like, too bad but i did i did thank him because yeah i mean that i i'd kind of been thinking oh my my book came out too late to make any year in list so didn't, i didn't get my hopes up about being in, on any of them so that was a very nice surprise okay so but it, you know it's, it brings up an interesting question because i think like the the maxim uh that i've heard repeated over and over again is that you know if, if somebody um reviews you negatively and it's, and especially if they're really harsh or uh, nasty about it like you just let it go you know don't mm -hmm. don't succumb you know don't strike back you know etc cetera, etc cetera. uh but then if mm -hmm. somebody praises your book and uh you know gushes about it i think the, <laughs> the inclination is to say thank you i've i've said thank you you know like, thank you so much i appreciate it it feels great to get a good review and to get somebody who reads and responds to it in the way that you hope for um, mm -hmm. but there's, there doesn't seem to be any kind of like Maxim saying, like, if somebody gushes about your work, don't like go like an excited puppy and start thanking them. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but, you know, I guess it's, um, it's okay to say thank yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, I guess it doesn't, it, we don't have a, a rule that works both ways, but I think the feeling is that like reviewers or SAS critics, people who are doing work to promote other writers. Um, that it's like a little bit of a thankless task, um, unless you get thanked. So, <laughs> well, um, but that's the thing though, is that like, is it, if you're a reviewer and you write something nice about a writer's book and then they mm -hmm. send you a thank you, is it then some sort of breach of not protocol? What's the word I'm looking for? Like, is it somehow, um, unethical to then respond and like get into some sort of relationship? With that writer, because what if you have to review another one of their books down the line and then you wind up hating that one? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it seems like a little... Yeah, dicey. I mean, that's tricky and it's kind of something that I think you have to ignore in poetry just because the poetry world is so small. Um, but I've also found this to be true, like, you know, with with social media being so prevalent that, like, it's so easy to kind of create these casual friendships with writers that you admire. Right. Um, and like, like who are you, who are you Twitter friendly with that? Like, you know, is like big time. Like, do you like, 
like you and Salman Rushdie? Big time. Um, I'm Twitter friendly with Taolin, for example, um, yeah. and I wrote about his book recently, but only on my own blog. It's not like I reviewed it in, you know, in the New Yorker or something. Right. Um, but like, I mean, just an or so another thing. I, I recently wrote an essay um, about Kate Zambrino's heroines, and she's somebody that I'm like Twitter friendly with. Like, right. we are we are online friends, but I don't know. I mean, the reason that I became friendly with these people is because I was interested in their writing, and I became interested in them before. I was friendly with them, you know, right. like when they were just strangers to me. And so it's just so easy online to form acquaintanceships with people that you admire from a writing perspective that I don't know that we can then draw these ethical lines where you yeah. can't write about people you know, because, you know, eventually you end up knowing a lot of people. That's right. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think the online world sort of the online world's definitely changed the way writers interact with one another and the way that writers interact with their readers. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's for the positive. I think it's for the, I think access is good. I'm not a fan. I I get really um I bristle when I think of ivory towers and people, you know, it's just quit being so fancy and come down and talk. To <laughs> well, I also think that often, you know, the stuff that people have to say about writers that they know it can be more interesting because they're reading that work really carefully yeah and like then, especially if they've like been working like seen that writer work on a project like you know over the years before it was published they know how it evolved like they've read it more than once they might have really smart things to say about it um like, that I, you wouldn't if you're just reviewing books by strangers that fall in your lap every week yeah it's like i read elisa's high school poetry back when she couldn't produce an aphorism if she tried you know <laughs> Exactly. I've seen that evolution. <laughs> well, it's been, really, it's been really fun talking with you. I'm, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Did we miss anything? Was there any big event in your life that we didn't cover? Did you, uh, you never got arrested or, uh, I don't know. Is there anything controversial? No. Nothing. You seemed like you got your shit together. Yeah. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty responsible human being, I would say. Well, go down to your local dispensary and, uh, buy an ounce of <laughs> like uh neopolo it's on my to-do list yeah it's on your to-do list okay well uh i appreciate the time congratulations on the book and uh best of luck with whatever comes next all right thank you so much for having me okay folks there you have it that is elisa gabbert go get her book it is called the self unstable and it is available now from black ocean you can find elisa online where she blogs at the french exit.blogspot.com she's also on twitter where her handle is at egabbert. Uh, thanks again to our sponsor, Squarespace. If you need a new website or an online portfolio, look no further. Go to squarespace.com, and uh, when you sign up, be sure to enter the offer code OTHER1. Again, that offer code is OTHER, and then the numeral 1. Do that. It's a good idea. You get 10% off when you enter that code. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. Uh, it's the official app of this program, and it's the best way to keep up with the show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. And you can also download episodes to listen to offline. And uh, best of all, you can access premium content and the full archives via the app. So uh, you go download the app for free, and then if you want, you can sign up for premium right there inside of the app. It's only 2 bucks a month, and once you're subscribed, you get everything. You can listen to the full back catalog, uh, including my conversations with uh, writers like Ben Fountain, Blake Butler, Kate Zambrino, Sam Lipsight, David Shields, Cheryl Strayed, Roxane Gay, 
uh, and on it goes. You name it. Okay, so please go get the app. The app itself is free, and it is available right now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. Also, uh, please wear sunglasses if you're in an outdoor environment and the sun is shining brightly. Protect your eyes. Protect your uh, cornea, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Learn from the error of my ways. And, uh, uh, but also, please do not wear sunglasses indoors. Do not wear sunglasses uh, at night, to quote a uh, song by Canadian pop sensation Corey Hart. Just use them for what they're for. It's not complicated, which I, I assume you know. It's just that I happen to make things complicated because that's what I do. I take simple things and I make them complex. I take a piece of string and I make a ball of yarn. Please remember that Zane Gray was a dentist and that J.R.R. Tolkien died of a chest infection while hospitalized for something else entirely. That is it for now. Thanks again to Elisa Gabbert. Go get the self unstable. Uh, I will be back on Sunday with another conversation with another writer. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to be mind blowing. I'm overselling this uh, and I don't care. Uh, Sunday's episode, it will change your life. <laughs> and what if it did? What if it could? Please tune in on Sunday uh, or whenever you like, please tune in at your convenience, at your leisure, at your leisure, in whatever manner best uh, accommodates your uh, particular schedule or, sh or your schedule. <laughs> okay. Are we feeling good? What's your worldview? <laughs>